We ask, um, Father, that uh, you would bring healing to our hearts, Lord, where we have uh, grown uh, diseases and where we have grown um, selfish attitudes in our heart. I pray that you would bring conviction through your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would surrender and lay down every part of our life in obedience to you. Father, we are so wrong to hold things back. We're so wrong to not trust in you completely. Lord, we repent and we, um, we pray that you would bring fresh, new grace into our lives, Jesus, by your very life given to us in the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would heal uh, Jared of his headaches, and we pray that, that you would do that for your glory. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the trials you bring to our lives and how they force us to rely upon you and depend upon you in ways that we never could before. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There was this one young pastor one time, and he was, he was going to seminary, he was learning how to preach, and he got his first opportunity in his third year of seminary to go preach at a little church. And so he, he went out to the church, and he was, really, he was really excited about it. And he was really prepared, he felt confident about what he was going to preach to the congregation. So he, he walked up to the pulpit uh, boldly with his head high, and, and he was radiating self-confidence and he started speaking his sermon and going through his points but as he would read the scriptures he he started to stumble over the words and and then he got confused in his notes and they fell and his note cards were on the ground and he's trying to gather them up and he got all tongue-tied and he started sweating anyone else sweat when they speak publicly yeah it's gross i know but he forgot his deodorant that day and he starts he he was sweating and he was getting so self-conscious and so nervous and he lost his train of thought and he's just it's this whole disaster and halfway through the message he began to panic and so he did the safest thing he knew what to do he just he just humbly prayed and he ended his message and he quickly walked off the stage with his head head down and his self-assurance gone and after that one of the godly elders of the church came up to him and whispered to the embarrassed young man. He said, you know, if you had gone up to the pulpit the way that you came down, you would have come down the way that you went up. And that elder was right because God still resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You guys ever heard that before? Yeah, we talk about it all the time. Well, we're... That's the, the principle that the Lord has for us to meditate on today, to remember today, and to learn today. And that comes from James 4, 6. In the book of James, James tells us, God gives more grace, therefore, he, and he draws a, a quote in from the Psalms. He said, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter said the same verse in 1 Peter 5, 5. He said, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We're going to look at a little bit at those a little later. But that's our introduction, where we're establishing this everlasting principle that God doesn't like pride, but he really likes humility. So can someone tell me what humility is? Anyone want to venture a definition of what humility might be? Others first? 
Great. Any other thoughts? No to self and death to self. Thank you, BK. I heard some. What was what, Perry? Putting on, like having the heart and the attitude and the spirit of Christ. Okay. So others first. Yeah, Daniel. Okay. Yeah, not thinking too much of ourselves. That's pride, obviously, and then humility is kind of the opposite. Well, awesome. Great. Well, let's get into our text now in Exodus chapter 10, and let's see what we find in this text. Now the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh. For I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell him, tell, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your sons' sons the mighty things that I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So God, in each one of these plagues, he gives us a little bit more information about his purpose for these plagues you know he's told him in the past different things as we've gone through these plagues we've learned these different lessons and and now he brings up the fact that he wants the families in israel to be able to look back on what he's doing now and tell their children and to and grow their children up in knowing the mighty works of the lord and uh, the, the principle that we're going to learn today is one of those things that we need to pass along to our kids. And it's something you can't really tell your kids, oh, you need to be humble, you need to be humble, you need to be humble. Your kids have to be shown how to be humble. Let's keep going. Verse 3. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long... Will you refuse to humble yourself before me? I'm going to read that again. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they might serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. So this everlasting principle that we see today is that God requires humility of all men. And when a person relates to God with this humility, they will be blessed by God's grace, God's favor, God's gifts, God's help. They will be helped, they will be forgiven, they will be encouraged, they will be taught, they will be protected, they will be supplied with all that they could ever want or need through Jesus if this attitude of humility exists in their life. But pride is the opposite of humility. Pride makes you fight against God, also makes him fight against you. Pride is the natural state of all the enemies of God. Pride is our greatest fault. It is our worst trait. It, deserves, um, it destroys more lives than all wars, diseases, and everything else combined. Pride does. And Pharaoh is a man of pride. He refuses to humble himself before God 
He will not do what God says because he will not accept God's authority in his life. That's what pride could also be described as. I'm the boss of my life. I do what I want to do. Nobody can tell me what to do, especially not some invisible God who I don't believe in. And God stands there and says, oh yeah? Let me reveal myself to you. And we see these plagues happening. So God, he brings this plague. He's going to bring this plague of locusts. In verse 5 it says, and they shall cover the face of the earth so that you will not be able to see the earth. God is recarpeting Israel or Egypt with grasshoppers. Ugh, gross. I like soft carpet. You guys like that big fluffy carpet? Can you imagine crispy <laughs> grasshopper carpet? Ugh, gross. And he says here, and they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains from, uh, to you from the hail, and they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. And they shall fill your houses, gross, and the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the man go, that he may serve the Lord their God. And do you not know that Egypt is destroyed? So even the servants of Pharaoh are like, Bro, really? You are not going to win this fight. Why are you still refusing to humble yourself before God? They can easily see that God is bigger and stronger than Pharaoh, but Pharaoh is somehow blinded by his pride. And that is exactly what happens to us, and it happens to our families, and it happens to our friends, and it happens to this whole world. We get blinded by our pride. We get blinded by our pride. Our friends and families may try to tell uh, you that you're being prideful, but we not, might not be able to see it because we're just blind to it. And I'm praying that today, during our study and our time in the Word, that we can have our eyes and our hearts opened to how we are still prideful. Um, because I... No matter who you are, there are still levels in your heart or areas in your life where we still are be acting prideful. We still think we don't need God for that part of our life. I figured that one out. I need God for all this. But this one area, and I'm just hoping that today we kind of have this full revelation of who we are, what we need from God, and, and how fun and wonderful it is to humble yourself before God, knowing that his response is going to be what? Grace and love and acceptance. We'll see that as we keep going here. So verse 8, so Moses and Aaron were brought again uh, to Pharaoh, and he said to them, go and serve the Lord your God. But, but who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, we're going to go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and our herds we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. And so he said to them, 
the Lord had better be with you when I let you and uh, when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. He says, "Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for it that is what you desired." And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So Pharaoh is still pridefully resisting the will of God and the word of God. He doesn't want all the people to leave, so he demands that that Moses keep all the little kids so that he has a guarantee that their parents are going to come back for the kids. But with Moses, this isn't even a possibility. He doesn't compromise, right? We saw the compromise before that Pharaoh asked Moses to compromise and say, well, just go a little ways, you know, or just hold a fast right here in Egypt. You don't need to go out, but Moses has refused to compromise. And so now he, uh, Pharaoh, get, all he can do is get angry and make empty threats. And so as we've seen how this story and this entire book pictures our life and our departure out of the world, and Pharaoh is a picture of who? Pharaoh is a picture of Satan, right? And the Israelites are, are believers who are leaving the, the enslavement of Egypt, the world. And, and now we have Pharaoh making all these angry threats. But can he actually do anything? No. And this is a wonderful picture for us of how Satan loves to get angry at you and yell at you and threaten you and say, you are never going to quit drinking too much. You are never going to stop smoking weed. You are never going to end this part, this addiction, or you're never going to leave the world in that way. And he, he gets angry, and we feel it. We feel shame. We feel inadequacy. We feel that we can't do it. He's great at manipulating our feelings. Even though God is coming in, and he's saying, I am going to redeem you, and I am going to pull you out of Egypt, and I am going to rescue you. And it's a new life for you. We can depend on him. We can trust in him. But Satan is going to yell and scream, but he can't stop him. He can't stop it. When God sets us free, we are free indeed, right? All right, let's finish up our, our text in Exodus. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come on the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land and all, the hail, uh, all that the hail is left. And so Moses stretched his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought locusts, and the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. And they were very severe. And previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there ever be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. So there, remain, there, there remained nothing green on the trees or in the plants in the field throughout all the land of Egypt. You see, our verse in James said, God resists the proud. Do you want God's hand against you? When he says God resists the proud, it means he stretches his hand out and he pushes prideful people away. Or he brings plagues into their life like this locust plague. 
It's a non-negotiable law. We must humble ourselves or God will and must be against us. Yet we are ingrained in the way that we're taught in school that pride and self-sufficiency is what we need to focus on. You can do it. You are wonderful. You don't need anybody. You can do anything you want to do. And all these ideas go in to create in us this, I don't need anybody, including God. And nobody can tell me what to do, including God. And that puts us at enmity with God and his love. Look at our text, verse 16. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. Now, we've seen fake repentance last time when we talked about hail, right? We saw that, that Pharaoh tried to sound sincere, but he wasn't sincere. It lasted like 10 seconds, and then he was back to rebelling against the Lord. Pharaoh's pride is just oozing out of every word here. He said, I might be just a little bit wrong. I made a mistake. I did just this one thing bad. No, God says, you are a sinner. This is who you are. This is your identity. You always choose rebellion. But then Pharaoh says, I'm not going to talk to your God because he will never be my God. I refuse him. But I kind of want this plague to go away, so can you talk to your God for me? He's refusing personal connection with God. It's like going to a priest to have your sin taken away instead of you talking to God directly. Right? Then the third thing he says is, why don't you take away this death only? Not my sin nature. Not my sin. I'm fine with who I am. I just want you to take away the plague. I just want you to take away the consequences. Bro, Moses, you are my problem. Your God is my problem. Can you talk to your God and maybe you guys just stop being my problem? And Moses is like, bro, you are the problem. The plague isn't the problem here, uh, Pharaoh. You are the problem. If you would just ask God to take away your sin nature, to take away the sin that indwells you, he would respond with grace for you acknowledging that you're a sinner, for you humbling yourself before him. But Pharaoh wants no part of that. He doesn't want to serve God. He doesn't want to know God. He wants God out of his life because he's prideful. Verse 18, so he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. And there remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. So the everlasting law and the everlasting principle in God's universe is this, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this works in every way of our life. So in James 4, 6, that text says God gives more grace. Therefore, he says God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. So this is our, 
our vertical relationships. So in our relationship with God, in our dealings with God, there must be humility. You must bow before him. You must acknowledge that he is the king of your life. He can take you away or give you life at his discretion. And he can judge you your sin. He is perfect and he is God. We must deal with him with humility. Okay? But then in Peter, in 1 Peter 5.5, it doesn't deal necessarily with our vertical relationship with God, but it deals with our horizontal relationship with other people. And see, this principle of God resists the proud, it applies in the exact same way. First Peter says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to the elders. In fact, all of you just be submissive to one another for God and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So there, Peter, he takes the same godly principle, but he applies it to our horizontal relationships with every human being in the world. He says, be clothed with humility. Just be humble. Now we're going to look at a few other verses. So we're going to leave behind Exodus. We've covered that story. And we're going to see how this principle is developed throughout the rest of Scripture. So feel free to turn with me to these verses. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Isaiah 57, verse 15. We've looked at this verse many times in our past. We'll look at it many times in our future because it's one of those central verses about God's character and who God is that I love. It's probably my favorite verse In the Bible, I say that every week, but it's really true this time. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Look at the the language God is using about himself. He's saying, I am high, I am lofty, like way up there. And I inhabit eternity. In other words, one time is too small for me. I inhabit, I fill all of eternity. All the past and present is too small even for me. I I fill it all. I inhabit eternity, whose name is holy, he says. I dwell in the high and holy place. But look at this. With him who is a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. This is God's heart. He's like, I am so awesome, guys. You don't even know. I'm high and lofty. My name is holy. It's just so different than anything you can imagine. But I dwell with, I want to be with, I want relationship with anybody who will be humble and contract. That's the way to real living relationship with God. Withness. I dwell with him. I want to be together. But just how concrete is this law? Just how far will God go to show this principle is true? Our principle, again, is God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. How far do you think he'll go? Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 21. We're going to talk about a guy named Ahab. Has anyone heard of Ahab before? He was a whaler. No, just kidding. <laughs> Literature joke. Okay. Um, right? Captain Ahab? Right? 
Well, this is King Ahab, and this is a different guy. This is probably the worst guy you've ever heard of. He married someone. Do you guys know who he married? Jezebel. Jezebel. By the way, girls, if someone calls you Jezebel, it's not a compliment. She was like the worst. We'll, we'll study her a little bit later. But Ahab was a king in Israel who was terrible, awful. Let's just read chapter 21, verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite and saying, Arise and go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth. Where, uh, where he has gone down to take possession of it. So just to tell you this story, Naboth was a sweet, innocent guy, and uh, Ahab came in and said, I want your vineyard, and Naboth's like, no. And so Ahab killed him and said, now I have your vineyard. Nice guy. And you shall speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Ahab is just such a jerk, just so prideful, like, Oh, there's my enemy, Elijah, right? Okay, now look what he says. And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you, and I will take away your prosperity, posterity, and will cut off Ahab from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. All right. So God has pronounced judgment on Ahab. He didn't give him mercy. He didn't give him another option. He just said, you are going to die because you're a jerk. But look at verse 25. Highlight this verse. Look at it. It says, but there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, had stirred him up. He has nothing good in him. Now look. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So it was, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, and he put sackcloth on his body, and he fasted and lay in sackcloth, sackcloth and went about mourning. And then we have the most weird verse. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. But in the days of his son, I will bring calamity on his house. Wow. If I was God, I would let Ahab die very quickly. He's an awful guy. But God is not me God is bound by his character and his love. God still 
loves Ahab. Ahab is a Jew. Ahab has one of God's chosen people, and that doesn't mean Ahab is a saved, but it means God loves him like he loves all people. God made him. And God's character is that he loves all his children, even the bad ones. If I were to say, all my children are well-behaved, I would, <laughs> my, <laughs> Ezekiel's like, no, that is not true all the time, right? You're not well-behaved all the time. But no matter what you guys do, right? I've got these six boys, no matter what they do, I will love them. And that helps us understand the love of God. Even though Ahab is awful, he loves him, even the bad ones. And this principle that God gives grace to the humble will never fail. It will never fail. So here we see God delays his judgments on the house of Ahab. Now Jezebel dies because she never humbles her himself and dogs eat her, like he said. It's a great part of the Bible. Now turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We're doing a little character study on these people that have dealings with God and humility. So look at, look at Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar the king writes a letter to all the peoples of the world. So guess what? You're included in this letter. He's writing this letter to you. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Hey, nice, nice beginning to a letter, right? I said, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. He's witnessing to us. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to de- generation. And then Nebuchadnezzar is going to tell us his story of what happened to him. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my, pa- my house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream that made me afraid. And he goes on to describe this dream. And then he has visions, and he goes on through, and Daniel explains these visions. And we go now to verse 28. We skip down. And it's getting to the point here, but we don't have enough time to go through the whole thing. So verse 28, then all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, I was walking in the royal palace and the king spoke and said, is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my own power and for the honor of my majesty? So we see pride, right? Everyone agree that that's pride? All right. So he's got this infectious pride uh, deep in his heart. And uh, while he was still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven fell and said, King Nebuchadnezzar, <coughs> to you it has been spoken that a kingdom is departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you and until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Then, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. What? 
Now, look down at the end of verse 36, verse 37. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, what does it say? He is able to put down. See, humility is not just an everlasting principle, but God is working it in our lives. And with Nebuchadnezzar, God loved Nebuchadnezzar, even though Nebuchadnezzar killed maybe millions, like lots and lots of people were killed by the kingdom of Babylon under his rule. And yet Nebuchadnezzar, God loved him, and God humbled him. God was able to, and he was willing to, and Nebuchadnezzar repented in his humility. And we are going to meet Nebuchadnezzar probably in heaven as a brother because he came to, to bless and honor God and he believed in God's power and authority and he submitted his, himself to God. Isn't that crazy how Nebi was humbled? God was able to do that. Everyone who laughed is a VeggieTales fan. Woo! Just kidding. Uh, there's nothing more beautiful than humility and nothing more ugly than pride. There's nothing more beautiful than humble dependence on God and nothing more ugly than self-dependence and a lack of need for God. This is in the spiritual world we're talking about. No matter how good you are, you're not good enough to have even an ounce of pride before the living God. All right, turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And if you think Nebuchadnezzar was bad, and if you think Ahab was bad, wait till you meet Manasseh. This guy, wow. Second Chronicles 33. Let's read about this guy, Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Anyone in here 12 years old? Boom, King Ezekiel. There you are. He was 12, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He raised up altars to Baals, and he made wooden images, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. So what does this mean? This means he has abandoned worshipping God, and he likes other religions better. He's building high places, which is places like churches where they could worship these other gods. And then it says he worships all the hosts of heaven and stars. So he's worshiping stars and astrology, and he's into what's my sign. And not only that, he is worshiping demons, actual, the host of heaven. He's talking to demons, and he's like, you guys are cool. Can I worship you? Can I serve you? And that's the type of guy that this is. He built altars uh, also in the house of the Lord which the Lord had said in Jerusalem should be my name forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the Lord of God, uh, the house of the Lord. And look at this, verse 6. He also caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, what does that mean? He took his kid and they built this statue to Molech, the god this demon, and they built this brass statue, bronze statue, and it looked like this. It, had, it was a statue of this demon, and, and he had a, a hands out like this, and they put a fire below the hands, so it would heat these hands up red hot, and he would take his kid, 
his son, and he would put him in there and let them die and boil as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Horrible. Something God would never command me to do, you hope. And (laughs) yet, this is the type of guy this was. And you're like, whoa, that is just barbaric. But isn't that the same thing abortion is? Taking your child and sacrificing it to a God of pleasure? I don't want, I want to do what I want to live with my life instead of love this child. So I'm going to get rid of it. Wow. So, he even caused his sons to pass through the fire. He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft and sorcery. And he consulted mediums and spiritists. It means he liked talking to ghosts, demons. He literally was like having parties at his house to try to get more demons to come and just come to me. I want to talk to you. I want to serve you all. Anything except God. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. I can understand why. He even set a carved image the image which he had made in the house of God, which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house in Jerusalem is where I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for their fathers. If only they're careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh, look at this, seduced Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than all the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they wouldn't even listen. What a sad verse in the Bible. The Lord spoke to his people who he rescued out of Egypt, who he said, I will be your God, but they wouldn't even listen. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks. So what they would do, the Assyrians were famous for this, they had these giant hooks, and when they conquered a country, they would put the hooks in your cheek, and then they would drag you back to their land with the hook in your cheek. So they took him with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now when he was in Now this, again, is one of these verses where you're just like, it could just pass right by if you're not paying attention. So pay attention to this verse. When he was in the affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. Humility is all he has left even though he was in a horrible, terrible prison and he was a horrible, terrible person, he was able to humble himself. And he calls him the Lord his God. Wow. And look at what the response of God is. Too little, too late, go to hell. That's not what it says. Although that's what I was expecting to hear because that seems just to me, I don't understand how loving God is. And I also don't understand how, to what extent he will go to demonstrate this principle of humility to be true. Manasseh is in the Bible for you because you're a terrible person too, maybe. 
And God is saying, listen, even if you have had an abortion in your past, even if you have been hooking up with a demon, whatever the, however far you think is too far, God says, if you humble yourself before me, I love you and I will respond. Look what he says. And he received his entreaty, he heard his supplication, and he brought him back to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And then he goes on, and after this, Manasseh goes on to change a whole bunch of stuff, and, uh, and good works follow in Manasseh's life. If you would just continue to go ahead through verse 20, we don't have time. Knowing God in this way, humbling yourself before God, knowing you deserve nothing from God, but you humble yourself before him, knowing him in that way produces all kinds of wonderful good works in your life. All kinds of things you start, you start to say, I'm not okay with that anymore, and I'm going to live my life this way because God has loved me. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Now, there's one other king we're going to look at, and his name was Josiah. Okay? Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and we're going to be in chapter 34. So if you just want to turn the page over to the eight-year-old king Josiah, he became, and the entire nation has now turned their back. So, uh, Manasseh, was that the guy we just were talking about? Yeah. Manasseh, he, he kind of had this little mini revival, but it was really just in his own life. The whole nation is just still running from God horribly, doesn't even know God anymore. In fact, they went hundreds of years without even reading the Bible. They didn't even know where the Bible was anymore. They didn't hardly remember any of it. And so what happens is they're going through some old dusty things in like the basement of the temple and the, and the, and the castle. And the, this one guy finds a copy of the Old Testament and he brings it to Josiah, this eight-year-old king. And they read it to him and he's like, oh, bummer. We are in big trouble because we have abandoned our God who rescued us. We have done so many horrible things. The entire nation has abandoned God. And he read in there the actual consequences were going to be that God would send them into slavery in Babylon. And Josiah was like, oh, I'm in trouble. So he sends someone to a pastor he knew, a prophet. And he sends them and says, hey, ask this pastor, this prophet, this guy who actually knows God, ask him what's going to happen. And this is where we pick it up in verse 24. Thus says the Lord, this pastor, this prophet, responds, and he says, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, and all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place and not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent uh, you to speak to me, and he had to ask me, he said, concerning the words which you've heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard the words against this place and against an inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and you wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely I'll gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered in your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see the calamity which I'm going to bring on this place and on its inhabitants. So they brought that word back. Plagues and and difficulties, listen, reveal our hearts. 
I know a lot of you are going through some difficult times. And, and the Lord has allowed it. Maybe he's even the source of it. And all of them have this way of bringing up what's really inside you. We either respond with humility and brokenness before God when tough things happen, or we respond with pride. We refuse to submit to him and his will. We refuse to surrender to his word and his counsel. You go to the doctor. Doctor says, it's terminal. It's a great trial. What's in your heart that comes out at that moment is really what's in your heart. And I'm not talking about being shocked or being fearful for a moment, but what comes out, are you angry and bitter against God and his decision for this? Or do you humbly submit to him and say, thank you for the life you've already given me. I pray I honor you with the time I still have left. What's in our hearts? What is in our hearts? Locusts are little things, right? Maybe like the biggest one I've ever seen is like that, right? If I was attacked by a single locust right now, I would win. My kung fu would come out, right? One locust against me, I will win. But if God sent millions of locusts after me, I would lose. And sometimes God gives you just one little difficulty, and we're like, okay with that. We're like, hey, I can handle that one. But sometimes we get all these little things coming at us at the same time, and all of them add up to a really overwhelming situation. Anyone get overwhelmed? Man. And it's like, if I just had one of these problems, I could be okay. My kung fu could work. But when I have all of these problems at the same time, it is simply overwhelming. And God sometimes sends a whole lot of little things into our lives that just add up to more than we can handle. But see, each problem is not the problem. All the problems together are not the problem. The problem is me and my heart is pride. Will we live with humility and respond to each one of our difficulties by humbling ourselves before God and saying, I'm the problem, please change me? Or are we going to respond with pride and say, Lord, just get rid of this death only. If you just change this one thing in my life, I would be so ready to serve you. I would be ready to just love and be the, just this is one thing. Just change this one thing. Pharaoh, he was devastated by these locusts, but he never humbled himself. God came to him and said, why do you, you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? And God's people should learn a lesson from Pharaoh is that God requires humility, but we don't usually like that. It's hard. But just like the children of Israel, they are going to struggle for hundreds of years with the same issue of, hum of pride and thinking that they are okay, thinking that they don't need God. We're going to see that as we journey through Exodus. It's a constant battle for us, and we're going to be growing. But no matter how much we fall, no matter how bad we get, 
God is still 100% faithful to this everlasting law. And our great lesson for today is that he will give grace to the humble. We're only ever one step away from forgiveness and restoration. All of us, no matter how private. And maybe you're thinking in your mind, yeah, I, I understand that for me, but this person I'm dealing with is so in, insanely prideful. Just pray that the Lord would change that heart. Show them by your example what humility is. Accepting wrong, accepting difficulties, repenting always so that you can minister to those people the power of the gospel. Because when he says grace is upon the humble, grace is all that we need. So would you guys stand with me? We're going to, do we have a song? Yeah, all right, we're going to sing a song to wrap up our sermon. Sorry, I messed up all your stuff. So, we're only ever one step away from forgiveness and from restoration. God says if we would confess our sins in 1 John 1.8 to the Lord, that he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is like a, a, uh, a moment where we can deal with the Lord, and during this song, maybe you need to remember that humility is, is what a relationship with God is built on and is based on. And maybe we need to humble ourselves and say, Father, just forgive me. Forgive me for pridefully thinking I don't need you, for not seeking you in your word each day. And Lord, I want to I grow in staying in a humble place, building my life upon a humble um, foundation where I don't believe I have this all figured out and I, I don't believe I can do it on my own, but I'm going to confess my need to you every day. So let's pray on that and we'll sing this song. Father, I thank you for your, your great mercy that you have that, that is just so clear as we read these stories of Nebuchadnezzar and Ahab and Manasseh and Josiah and, and even Pharaoh. And I thank you that there's stories in the Bible, multiple stories of guys who are worse than me, who humble themselves and they receive your boundless grace and favor. And I pray that that would expand. I pray that I would be out there preaching a gospel to this world that humility is what you're looking for and that your love will be upon all who humble themselves before you. I pray that I could give people hope in this world I pray you'd give me the right words to say to everyone I talk to. And Lord, as a group, as a church, we repent of being self-sufficient. We cannot do anything apart from you. We can't do anything to please you or to make up our sin. We, we've done so wrong. We are so far below the standards of holiness and perfection that you are. We all need you and we humble ourselves before you and i pray that if anyone in here needs that washing of sin that the initial relationship with god to just happen you are one step away just call upon the lord and say father forgive me because jesus died on the cross for my sins forgive me and restore me bring me into a right relationship with you 
I cannot do it on my own. I only can call upon you in humility and in faith.